third issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 275 of the Standard Issue podcast. I'm Mickey Noonan and my dog starts school this week. Oh, bless her. You're feeling emotional. They grow up so fast, Jen. They do. <laughs> well, she bloody will. Yeah. She's put on two kilos in two weeks. Fucking hell. That's a lot. I'm kind of losing at that rate. We should maybe plateau in the middle where we'll weigh the same thing and then just pass like ships in the Sure, middle. we can get you matching harnesses if you like, Hannah. <laughs> Ooh. No, I'm not into that stuff. Sure. I'm Hannah. Well, you say yeah, that, no. I'm Hannah Dunleavy. <laughs> And I looked in my diary to discover I've scheduled some fucking for 2pm on the 11th of October. Is it written in pen or pencil? <laughs> it's, yeah, it's written in pen. It's written with an awful lot of confidence. So much so that I looked and thought, when did I write that? Because I haven't <laughs> even been drinking recently. When did I write that? <laughs> Who's the lucky recipient? Turns out, Mickey, it's you and Yosra. We're having a threesome. <laughs> because what it actually says is flicking. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to make an effort anyway, just in case things, you know, turn. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Hannah. I'm Jen Offred and I finally did my two minute beach clean, guys. Oh, well done, Jen. Yeah, well done. And how much stuff did you manage to collect in two minutes? Well, it actually was more like, I feel like I can say this because obviously I did that interview like a bazillion years ago and haven't done my two minute beach clean yet. But we did do like an hour. And oh, I took okay. my daughter with me, so that was two people's labour. So I feel like, you know, I've made up for those many, many, many times I have not cleaned the beach for two minutes. Was she much use? I don't know. Peaks and troughs, swings around about <laughs> a bit here and there, you know. Sometimes she's like, Mummy, look, there's some rubbish. Okay, cool. Uh, she did enjoy the litter grabber, though. And just to say, props to Hayley, who was the reason why I interviewed Nikki from the two-minute beach clean foundation the two minute foundation because she does this in harwich every day so she's kept it quite clean actually it turns out much rubbish. <laughs> but she organized it because they got a new thing from the uh two minute foundation like a sign with some litter pickers in it so she organized a big beach clean with lots of people so that was a really nice thing to do Aww, did you find any money nope or was it all just terrible terrible rubbish it was all really small bits of plastic Really little, just like little scraps of plastic that you just, you know, exactly as she said in that interview, just little scraps of plastic that have come off other things and then you, you know, usually quite brightly coloured because they might be like Smarties lids or, you know, a bit of a bucket and spade or whatever and you just catches your eye and you get it but yeah i was surprised by how many teeny weeny bits of plastic there were i'm going to harwich next weekend as you know jen i, I shall be inspecting your work thank and you i'll grade you. <laughs> you, can, you can come and litter pick with me amongst the shan uh, the shandies and shanties both you know i mean let's see yeah. how wednesday goes honey you might not be able to walk by, <laughs> by... <laughs> oh dear Coming up, I chat to comedian and all-round good egg, Kiri Pritchard-McLean, about her new radio show, The Best Medicine. Oh, lovely, Kiri. Author Caitlin Davis teaches me all about female private investigators throughout history, and I teach her the phrase, snakes with tits. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's one Even of my so. faves. In Jenny Off the Blocks, we've got Simone Biles, Sports Women of the Year, and Swapsies. And in Rated or Dated, is it a harmless cartoon? Is it a full-scale <laughs> horror film? You decide. As we watch The Hills Have Bunnies, sorry, Watership Down. Oh. But first, no platforming, no justice and no bell 
prizes. Nice it's time. Day. Thank you. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Custing. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. And yeah, we usually start with a joke here or a funny story. But instead, I wanted to say this. It is possible and reasonable to oppose the Israeli government's treatment of Palestinians, which I do, while simultaneously calling for the protection of Jews in Israel, in the UK, in every place in the world, which I also do. Hear, hear. Now, Jen agreed with me, but you might not agree with what I've just said at the top there. And, you know, that is, that is up to you. As stated many times before on this podcast, I'm a supporter of free speech and think that disagreement, even on the hottest of potatoes, is fine. It's to be expected. We are not one massive homogenous thought blob and we're going to have various opinions on pretty much everything. Some right, some wrong, some subjective, some objective. There is the old adage that opinions are like our souls. Everybody has one. And yeah, some of them stink. But I still believe people have a right to express them. I'm pals with people who have different opinions on some stuff than me. Sometimes we have a civil debate, sometimes we don't talk about it at all. Rich tapestry, etc, etc. I should add that I'm also a big fan of being able to change your mind when presented with new information. And not just that, but also seeking out new information and differing views to challenge the ones I hold. Big fan, huge fan, love that work. Now, just to be clear, some speech, such as that which amounts to harassment or incites violence, is, quite rightly in my opinion, not protected by the law or by freedom of speech. Although, to be fair, the line about what does and doesn't constitute this is often a bit hazy. Get me with my nuance. (laughs) No. And that's not going to catch on, Jen. However, if it is within the law, then a person should be able to speak or write on anything. So I am pleased to see that Professor Arif Ahmed, the new free speech chief at the Office for Students, that's the OFS, which is politically neutral, is pledging to make this the way forward at all English universities, some of which have become a bit no-platform happy of late. A new law passed earlier this year says universities now have a duty to secure and promote the importance of freedom of speech and academic expression. Higher education providers and student unions which fail to comply may face sanctions, including fines. Professor Ahmed will also oversee a new complaint scheme for students, staff and visiting speakers who, from August next year, could seek compensation if they suffer from a breach of a university's free speech obligations. In a speech at King's College London happening later today as we record on Monday, Professor Ahmed is expected to say that freedom of speech allows people to consider different points of view, which makes it fundamental to a high-quality higher education. For many students, he's expected to say, I always find that really weird when you know what someone's going to say before they've said it. (laughs) What if he changed his mind? Which, you know, I would support his right to do. Anyway, he is expected (laughs) to say that for many students, university might be the only time in their lives when they have both the time and the relative freedom to embark on this exploration. Critical thinking for the win, Jen. Yep, 100%. So, Mick, I feel like we've been waiting for the post-COVID ticking time bomb for a while now. The economy, for example, absolutely fucked. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, look at you with your technical jargon, Jen. (laughs) I've been paying a lot of attention to the, uh, I don't know, Uh, and in no way helped by former or present showers presiding over it. showers. Yep. The NHS, similar situation, Mm. but COVID presents almost a triple whammy for the NHS because obviously... The economy affects how much money goes into it, 
Meanwhile, the physical illness continues to put a significant strain on the health service. Yep. But thirdly, according to reports this week, a surge in people needing mental health care following the pandemic is also playing a part. The NHS Confederation said this week that health leaders are warning that mental health services have been left overwhelmed by a lack of resource. The organisation said that the services are at breaking point, contributing to A&E waiting times of up to 80 hours for some mental health patients. It's such a long time if you're in the middle of an episode. Yeah, It's, it's a long time if you've got a broken foot, isn't it? Let alone if you've got like, you know... I was going to say a broken brain, but perhaps that is not the right thing to say. No, I would say broken brain, because it can still be mended. I think that's fair enough. You might ask, I guess not unreasonably, why are so many patients presenting at A&E with mental health problems? And the answer to that is, well, a lot of the time, there's nowhere else. An unnamed acute trust chief executive was quoted by the organisation as saying, a lack of investment in care for patients who need mental health support outside of hospital and in the community is now having a direct impact on acute services and often means we have no choice but to admit. Obviously, patients being chucked into acute wards rather than mental health facilities is no good for people needing urgent care who are waiting longer for it or the people in need of mental health care. But it is also no good for the doctors and nurses who do not have the specialist training required to deal with these sometimes complex issues. Mm -hmm. World Mental Health Day is tomorrow as we record this and NHS bosses are calling for mental health to be reprioritised and for a clinically led review of standards for mental health. I mean, it feels like so many things in this country and, you know, the Uh, the wider world that it's been a long time coming. This is so urgent, so needed. uh, Yeah, really, really dire straits. Where's that in your speech, Rishi? (laughs) Oh, it's like... It's like I programmed a really shit AI robot. That's what it is. And I can't program for a monkey's bum, as the well-known saying goes. (laughs) Sorry, I was uh, rummaging through my seven bins. Um, Anyway, (laughs) Mick, would you like some good news? Yeah. Double good news, in fact. Oh, Jen, with this double good news, you're really spoiling me. I know. Well, last week, not one, but two women Nobel Prize winners were announced. First up, I know. First up, the Nobel Prize in Physics was awarded to, i do my best French accent here, Anne <laughs> That was awful, Jen, and I love you dearly, but it was like at least 100 times better than what I could have come up with. So, you know, crack on. Thanks, mate. Uh, along with Pierre Agostini and Ferenc Krauss for their work showing how short pulses of light can be used to study atoms. Don't ask me what that means, I can't tell you. But crucially, people who do understand it were suitably impressed. Good, good for them. Yep, and the award means that Professor, I'll do it again, Julia, who is based at Lund University, is the fifth woman to win the prize for physics. Go on. Five, yeah. I don't know how long, a while, right? A while? It's been around for, anyway. Well, that was pretty cool. But then later on in the week, it was announced that imprisoned human rights activist Najiz Mohammadi had been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize as well. Amazing. That is amazing. That is amazing. The 51-year-old Iranian, who is honoured for her work fighting against the oppression of women in Iran, is currently serving a 10-year prison sentence in, you guessed it, Iran. It perhaps won't surprise you to learn that Iran's foreign ministry weren't best pleased about the award. Really? didn't like it they thought it was uh, political correctness gone mad or something like that but um, yeah 
Though she was praised by committee chairwoman Berit Rice-Anderson, who said the award had come at tremendous personal cost. Understatement there, I feel. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well done, those women. Two women winning Nobel Prize. I mean, I think it's gone too far, Jen. What are going to like do about it? Like the Iranian it? government said, political friends. They didn't actually say that I should be clear. They did say it was politics, but... You know, yeah. You want, you need to stop comparing me to the Iranian government, though, Jen. I'm not. Sorry. I'm not a fan of that. I'm not a fan. Sorry, Mick. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but you know they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where it's a real effort to not just shout "fuck off" for a solid minute. You're all smart listeners, so I'm going to assume you've got your screaming pillows handy for the news that a woman in Montenegro has been fined by the court for fighting back too much when she was sexually assaulted. I know what you're thinking, but what was she wearing, right? (laughs) God. Milika Zhukovic was walking home with a pal when she noticed a man following them. He tried to chirp them, but they ignored him and laughed it off, which is when the man, unnamed in the press articles I've read, but identified in legal documents as UE, grabbed Milika's chin and, in her words, intimate area. Milika said... In such moments, she can only think of the worst. But I fought as hard as I could, and of course, I knocked him out. I really, really enjoy the of course there. (laughs) Yes, of course she did. You gunk. What I don't enjoy is that the judge decided Milica had, quote, exceeded the necessity of self-defence and violated public order and peace. He went on, Jen. He went on. Of course. Who'd have thought it? He went on to not only fine her 82 euros, but ordered her to pay the court costs of a translator for her attacker. I wish you could see Jen's face right now. Disgusted of Harwich. I don't know which was harder on me, the thug attack or the judge's verdict, said Milica, who is now appealing against the ruling in another attempt to ensure justice is served. I mean, it's hard to trust a justice system anyway, but when it has just proven itself so unjust, blimey. Good on that brave woman. And I am pleased to report that she's received a lot of solidarity and support including from women's rights groups, Montenegro's Prime Minister and other Montenegrin politicians. Sort your fucking life out, Judge. Wowzers. <laughs> Agreed. Welcome to Standard Issue, Kerry Pritchard-McLean. How the fuck are you, Kerry? <laughs> really good, actually. Yeah, really good. We're chatting now. I'm sat at my lovely farm in Wales, and I'm a few days off. I'm going off to New Zealand and filming for three weeks, which is very exciting. So this is a, a rare little bit at home I have before I disappear for the rest of the year. And then in my head, I get back on the 30th of October. I've got a big old killer show on Halloween, and then it's Christmas. <laughs> That's my head. Like, and then it's, it's bonfire that and then it's Christmas so <laughs> basically I'm I'm nearly at the end of 2023 as we speak now <laughs> what are you doing in New Zealand can you tell us it's a lovely job so I moved back to Wales and and since then have been uh, a Welsh learner because I didn't really speak Welsh when I was growing up at all I'm doing a program with Espadorek S4C the Welsh channel where myself um, a brilliant friend of mine an incredible multi-BAFTA award-winning chef Chris and another brilliant presenter from from S4C we're all going over to New Zealand and it's sort of like a a gang travel show so a really lovely job and filming days are very long sort of like usually about four you know 14 16 hours 
but doing it in a second language you're not proficient in and mm. still trying to be funny and feel like yourself there's there's part of me that's like what an amazing opportunity but i'm like because people are like oh look enjoy your holiday i'm like i'm gonna be working so hard i'm gonna be <laughs> so tired and so sort of like stuttery and weak when i get back but also who's gonna say no to a trip to new zealand well you know exactly what, I mean? <laughs> what we're actually here to talk about is the best medicine which is your new radio 4 show which started last week the best medicine and you being a comedian sounds like it's the format for a, a, a comedy show, which it kind of is, but also it's very much not. Can you explain to people what the best medicine is? So essentially we have a, a panel of brilliant people who come on board and that's a mixture of historians, healthcare workers, surgeons, academics, comedians. Notice I put that last there because it's the last <laughs> at the bottom of the pile. And they come on and they pitch their idea of what the best medicine is. And that could be for individuals or society or just, you know, the world in general. I'm so proud of it because it is, I think it's it's exactly the stuff I like to listen to. Like like you guys, it's like, it's funny and it's fascinating and it never, it never forgets to be either of those. And I think surreptitiously by stealth, it's really, really hopeful. And it's not set out there to be like, oh, we're just going to make a beautiful, optimistic, hopeful show. But actually, when you sit down with people who dedicate their lives to improving other people's and people they will never meet and possibly people who will benefit from it when they're long gone. Mm. It is really like I feel like it's such an honour to host this show. And I love stuff that feels like... um, like, like your brain is in the gym yeah. you know when you listen to a podcast and you're like oh this is like a workout for my brain and I'm not even doing anything yeah, well. and that's what I feel like the show is like it's so and it's really fun it's really fun yeah I agree because I listened to the first one and you're right there was a bit of history you know there was a book that I thought right I'm gonna read that about the masks about the men who come back from the first world war Harold Gillies, that is amazing. I've read that book and she is incredible do you know what actually interesting about that sorry to jump in can that's I quite right yes of yeah. course you can yeah. So Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris, who was on that first episode, which was our pilot episode that we recorded like over a year ago now, she's absolutely amazing. So when she recorded that, what she didn't know is she had breast cancer. So she came on to talk about, because she's a medical historian, to talk about this amazing Dr. Harold Gillies, who pioneered what we would call now reconstructive surgery or plastic surgery, because what happened in World War One is the weapons advanced far quicker than the medicine mm. did, so they had to sort of learn on the fly. It's an amazing book. And so Lindsay is brilliant. She's really good value. She's really clever. She's she's fantastic. And then she got, in, in the interim period between us being commissioned and the pilot going out, she got diagnosed with breast cancer. And so she comes back because we have an episode that's just about breast cancer, breast medicine, yes, please. And (laughs) she comes on and she talks about that experience. And I think it'll be very inspirational for people in, in terms of the way that she basically she just had a she had a feeling and she sort of advocated for herself. And that's one of, you know, one of the medicines that she talks about is, you know, like knowing yourself, advocating for yourself, checking all that kind of stuff that I think particularly as women, how we're socialized, that we learn to sort of like minimize our problems, you know, to sort of put other people's well-being above our own. And to especially when it comes to things like, you know, be deferential and Mm. all those things can mean that you could get a, a completely different diagnosis. You know, Lindsay, because she's, you know, an academic, when she got diagnosed, just documented the whole thing on Twitter, on social media, was going, this is fascinating. We're speaking to surgeons and, you know, has had had a lumpectomy and everything's looking absolutely grand now. But if it wasn't for her being like, no, I'm going to ask you to to do this for me. Yeah. It might have been a really... They basically said where it was in the breast is by the time they would have realised, it would have been very serious to the point of they couldn't have done anything. Yeah. I fully agree. My sister's not very well at the minute and she was knocked back a lot of times. 
And if she wasn't as stubborn as she was, I think we'd be in a lot worse position than we are now. Mm. Yeah, she kept mm. going back. And self-accuracy is, yeah, in that case, the best medicine completely. But in that first episode, there was also a lovely story about, a real sort of community story about how if I have a heart attack tomorrow, turns out one of my neighbours could come to save me because of this excellent new system. And I immediately thought, I wonder which one it will be. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I thought it had a lot going for it. You you must have learned so much over the recording of this. Absolutely. And, you know, because I find reading very difficult because of, um, I assume now it's the it's ADHD, which I have been diagnosed with for, you know, like over a decade now, maybe we're going on 15 years. I used to be a voracious reader as a child, just constantly, constantly couldn't, like I would just disappear and go and read books. And as an adult, I find it really difficult. And But people assume that I really read a lot because the ideas I talk about, so having something I can listen to... Yeah. And take in and then go away and do all my own research and hyper-focus and do all this kind of thing has been brilliant. So making this show, because, you know, we record for about two hours and I get to chat to people beforehand and we go through the research pack as well. And I don't know too much about people's, I know, kind of know potentially what they're pitching and I might know their background, but often it's a complete surprise. So it's more in the moment. Mm. And I ask all the questions that someone who doesn't know anything would ask. But going going away and, and being able to, well, sit there with an academic and, and ask, or the, and they go, oh, what about this and what about this and what about this and then the other people join in and the audience are very involved as well. It has been one of the most edifying jobs and not just because of, like I said, the sort of weird feel-good factor, which is so normally the antithesis to anything in comedy. A lot of comedy comes from being sort of cynical and aloof and outside. Yeah. But actually it's been like a lovely... Like, I feel like I'm part of something actually quite important by doing this, which is like an extra lovely feeling. But but to get all this knowledge for, for it to be paid, to be get all, yeah. all this knowledge is like really, really wonderful. It's such an interesting time as well, because I could imagine when I was walking around listening to it, I can imagine that somebody ordinarily could come on a show like this and say, for example, vaccinations. And 20 years ago, that would have been a perfectly reasonable thing to say. And now it could make somebody actually switch off. I doubt it would make someone who listens to Radio 4 switch off. But who knows? I posted, uh, I did a thing on my Facebook page. So I posted about the show and, you know, I put a picture of everyone who was on it. And, you know, the sort of the, like the graphic that you get from Radio 4 with all the... And also the, the lovely producer, Ben, who this is a real passion project of his. He's been such an amazing guy to work with. He got some earrings commissioned for me which are sort of like medicine bottles. Um, and then the, the little bit that attaches it are, are, are pills. They're really fabulous from this Welsh company that I love called Fizgo's Pop. And they've done it in secret together. They got these massive earrings for me as a present to say thank you. And I, I just like, so I put up a picture saying, look at what lovely thing that is for the producer to do. T- to kind of show people, it was like a genuine sort of family. Like Ben and I had been really collaborative. He'd spoken to all the experts, him, him and Tashi, the, the other producer. Who's going to be in the writer's room? What are the comedians going to look like? You know, because we wanted it to look like the world as well. We wanted it to be representative. So that was really exciting. But to just show that. And then someone wrote underneath and was like, uh, it was something like, um, oh, what a surprise, um, big farmer earrings. And it was like... (laughs) Yeah, this is. I'm. I'm really in the pocket of AstraZeneca. That's what's going on here. This is. I have worked for 13 years as a stand-up comedian, so I could eventually push pharmaceuticals on Tuesday nights on Radio Four. Yeah. That's been the big plan. 
And also, clearly, yeah. they haven't listened to it because it's like I think the best medicines are basically like community masks, but not even COVID masks. We're talking about reconstructive masks, and, yeah. and it's actually a conversation about ableism, you know, in in all its forms. One of them is is dancing and therapy. The other one is bubbles that you move to chemotherapy so you can target that you know the, the treatment more effectively. And it's like who's really finding objection with that other than someone who's been radicalized by the internet, which yeah. is a, is a really sad thing. And and I think actually. Stuff like best medicine is so needed because, you know, especially when the conversations are going on with the government at the moment about woke medicine and yeah. whatever that is, that actually that these the doctors and, and researchers and historians and healthcare professionals, they all come at this with such empathy in a way that I don't have as a comedian. Like, I read that person's comment and think, oh, just fuck off and die. <laughs> <laughs> and they spend all their time going, you know, I don't have to like you to think that you deserve the best possible quality of life and you know and the longest possible life yeah and i think they're pretty amazing people for that <laughs> i absolutely agree and actually what we really need is a, a fucking vaccination against that and sadly it doesn't <laughs> exist does it do you know what there's really interesting conversation the next episode episode two so it goes out at 6 30 p.m on tuesday night so i'm really for and then you can listen to it on bbc sounds there's a, a brilliant guy a journalist who's traveled all over the world and done all sorts of sort of investigative journalism who advocates for trust being the best medicine he is a black guy and he talks about how um, he was, it started with the, the black community and the low uptake of the vaccine. And he makes the really important point that like that is a community who in nearly every every country they've resided in have mm. been treated incredibly badly by healthcare professionals and still are. You know, we need, when we look at the maternal death rates being four times higher in black women than yeah. they are amongst, you know, like white women, that are you that surprised that they're sort of a bit you know, not quite sure and not trusting of medicine. The Tuskegee, you know, uh, this, the awful thing that they did with syphilis over there yeah. is horrendous. And he talks through all of that. And it suddenly, again, that like forces you to have empathy. Because my, you know, initial reaction to people who don't want to get vaccinated and are being a bit sort of, you know, standoffish is like, oh, come the fuck, it's not about you, come on. But actually, I'm saying that with all the privileges that I have of, you know, being a, you know, cis, middle-class, yeah. able-bodied white woman, uh, you know, who's fortunate enough to have been educated as well. And, uh, you know, and is also like a digital native, like I, I can understand and hopefully disseminate fake information online. And so it's very easy for me to come to that conclusion because my community is reaffirmed that, you know, and the medicine is to be trusted and we trust the science and it will look after you. Because yeah. uh, I'm not from a community where actually the complete opposite has been proven time and time yeah. again. And then it it just all becomes more nuanced, doesn't it? And that is like, I, I think we would all admit that where we're heading at the moment in terms of polarisation and, and the lack of nuance isn't actually making anyone happier, healthy or safer. So hopefully just allowing a bit of uh, space and breath around these conversations uh, on, with a really big platform between Sounds and, and Radio 4 will hopefully do some good. Yeah, agreed. Kerry, do you have an answer of what you think the best medicine is after all of this? Is it laughter? Um, Is it laughter, Kerry? Come on now. Well, part of me thinks that it, it is in terms of the things that I find it's very helpful for me, like the difficult things. Like as soon as I'm able to make a joke about it, that means that I've started some form of healing. Yeah. And like my partner and I, my partner has um, lost his mother when he was 19. And I'd say we joke about it at least once a day. <laughs> it's also a sign in uh, of my way of sort of a sque giving his hand a squeeze to go like, 
in in a weird way yeah <laughs> you know it's sort of making light of it is my way of going I, lo- I love you and i i'm acknowledging that thing happened and, and we can laugh about it and be together yeah i very much agree i mean you, you'll know this my dad was an alcoholic and so life with him was a bit of a roller coaster but more often than not when we talk about him we talk about it and it's funny i think that's a way of saying oddly i mean it's a way of coping it's a coping measure but but it's a way of saying like yeah we loved him we didn't hate him you know, if if I'd hated him, I wouldn't be able to laugh at this situation. Mm. Like, we, yeah, that was mm. the fact that, that here we are. Me and my siblings just pissing ourselves laughing at a story <laughs> that other people, if they walked into the room, would just be like, what the hell is that? How are you <laughs> laughing? But yeah, but obviously it's not the answer to everything. No, yeah. I think if you come from a, a family where that's currency as well, like my father is in hospital at the moment. He's been in hospital since early August um, and... The sign I know he's like when my when my partner and I've gone and visited him or I've visited my own the the thing we'll report back on is or he's making jokes you know he's being very funny he's being very witty he's very charismatic my dad even though he's really infuriating so that is like oh it's gonna be okay it's gonna be all right because he's he's like doing a bit so <laughs> to me that's a sign that like the actual medicine is working because dad's dad's trying to hold court and and showing off. So to me, it's it's also a sign that someone is well is, yeah. um, you know, when they've got the the people that I know and love, when they've got the sort of the capacity to find the humour in it, is their way of showing me that the actual medicine is working. That's a very good point. Last time you were on this podcast, we talked about Get Off, which mm. is, well, you say what Get Off is because you're spiel. bound to word it more <laughs> more succinctly than I will. Get Off Live Comedy is an independent HR that has been set up to try and eradicate sexual harassment and abuse within live comedy. So how are things going? Because you were doing a survey the last time we spoke to you. Yeah, good news. We've cured it. There's no more sexual harassment in comedy. (laughs) As you've seen in the news, that was all us. The best medicine Um, is a survey. Yes. (laughs) Now, that's an amazing bit, actually, that the University of Sunderland have been working with us on that. And we commissioned um, research. The respondents were largely, we had all genders, but were largely male. But that also represents the demographic of of comedy anyway. It does skew male. Some things were worse than we thought and some things weren't better, but they were different. We realised from the stats that about one in seven men who are in uh, in live comedy have it, uh, witnessed or experienced sexual harassment whilst doing it. About, I think it's one, it's either one in five or one in six um, non-binary people. And it goes to one in three if it's uh, if it's women, which is a horrible statistic that mm. like a third of, um, you know, a third of... Uh, women involved in comedy have either witnessed it or experienced it you know every gradient of um, not that anything is worth less you know it's all uh, this is obviously very victim survivor focused um but every type of horrific crime was represented i think the things that surprised us were um that the the type really i thought that basically a lot of it was online and i suppose of course and and we it was shortly after the pandemic that mm. the um, survey was commissioned so things we'd actually see the type of you know, lots of behaviour had been happening in person and then it didn't stop because of the pandemic. It just evolved. And actually it hasn't necessarily retreated from the internet. It's now just like a two-pronged defensive. Oh, yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Thanks, but a bit the like internet. Bu- <laughs> <laughs> but a bit like bullying in school, right? Yeah. I think about that if I was a kid now that, like, you'd get on the bus and you'd get home and at least it would stop. 
but now it's like and then you go on snapchat or tiktok or whatever, and it's happening there as well and it's no it's no different in terms of, of sexual harassment i mean i never see like it's a confidential service so we employ a brilliant amazing hr who is so like fiercely bright and qualified and great and 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 so interesting because her background is um, working with sex workers who have such a similar in- environment and, w- and working sort mm. of like, you know, operating in a quite unsafe gig economy as yeah. sort of individuals. So so much crossover there, which is sort of fascinating. What's been really heartening, <laughs> do you know what we talk about privately? So it's a group of, um, essentially we have a, a couple of members of, of paid staff, but it's largely volunteers, all of whom are women. Um, those are the no shit, Kerry. Yeah, those are the people who've got in contact to volunteer their time for free we sort of sit down and and we go through some fact after after i'm chatting to you we're having a big meeting one of the sad things we sort of joke about is um whenever someone gets outed for being i say outed because everyone kind of knows in comedy anyway who these people are when they get outed public and bear in mind they only get outed publicly if there's a story in it so it usually has to be the worst types of crimes committed by someone that your parents have heard of. Yep, yeah. So all the things where it's actually like, all the stuff is like, oh, there's that promoter who says, oh, come on, everyone has to give me a hug before they get, or I make all the ladies give me a hug before they get paid. When the journalists were incessantly calling me when everything was happening about Russell Brand, they didn't want to hear that stuff. They want you to name someone famous doing yeah. something appalling. I was like bombarded and just going like, no, no, you're the only, you're the first and only journalist probably that I've really spoken to about it because... It was also not very... Everything I saw wasn't victim-survivor-focused. Like, even in green rooms, when people strike up a conversation, I'm always so wary because I'm like, someone in this green room has most likely lived through something like this. Yeah. And we're sort of pontificating on what what happens next or who who do you believe, which is actually one of the sort of aims of Get Off is to remove the, oh, does that feel like it would be true to you? Or how well do you know this person or that person? Or what did you see that night? And actually go, okay, well, what is legal? What is your legal obligation as an employer? You know, what has been followed? And just to remind people, it's a workplace because I think in so many ways, it's hammered home that like it's professional. Like you do your time on stage. You don't get you, you don't get paid if you do your time. You get a bad reputation if yeah. you do over your time. You've got to turn up on time as well as do, you know, the right allocated amount of minutes. Yeah. And you don't do material that brings the club or the room or anything else into disrepute or the other acts. And there's all this professional conduct and, you know, like but then when it comes to that thing of keeping people safe that it's suddenly like oh what you know what what we can't hang out anymore it's like no you just can't assault people and i think that's Uh, absolutely reasonable yeah so it's really complicated and and again like so in some ways i'm not the best person to know because like it's we have a brilliant hr who's designed our policy do i know it in and out absolutely not (laughs) you know like i'm not even with my my comedy nights are signed up They're, they're members it's sort of um paid for by i say paid for by members um uh i i fill up the financial shortfall uh yeah so the members pay basically a penny on every ticket and they get the free training they get a policy they get you know they get support of a just to make sure that they are doing things right and it's so it's so interesting to see all the sort of like hand-wringing that happens when these these people get outed of people going, God, what can we do? And I had no, God, it's, you know, it's terrible. And I, I love this industry. I, you know, it's a few people spoiling it. It's the, mm. the bad apples thing. And I don't want anyone to drop out all this kind of stuff. And then you go, okay, well, give us a penny on every ticket and we'll make sure that you're looking after people and, you know, that you're anyone to vo- involved in your club. And, th- and they just go absolutely quiet. And you're like, that's interesting. Yeah. That's how much those people's safety is worth to you. A pet, you can charge 
40 pound a ticket you may i mean like what's most stuff it's between sort of 10 and 15 or 10 and 20 yeah. and a penny of that for every ticket they sell and they go absolutely radio silent and it tends to you know the bigger clubs it tends to be ones where women are very high up who go no no this is important that we're involved in this and i just think it's sad and we sometimes we sit down and they go oh god the membership requests have got a bit quiet and like i'll joke and go oh we just got to wait for another perv to be outed and then people remember it's something they should care about because yeah. a lot of the people running it are men who haven't experienced it. So it's a thought exercise to them as opposed to a lived experience. I mean, you will have known from when your time gigging, like there's so much stuff or just generally being a woman. Like I think me too had this effect on lots of us. You're like, I have forgotten more than I remember. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 And that's why Me Too was such a difficult time is because it was swirling everything mm. up and you're like, oh, yeah, and that, and that, and that. And yeah. that when I was 14 and that when I was 11 and that when I was 20 and this when I was... A... And it covers the absolute gamut of all the things that you can experience. And because it's not a near everyday occurrence, I mean, I imagine it'll drop off a cliff now. I'm 36 <laughs> <laughs> because I'm dead to society. But <laughs> if it's not a you know, near everyday experience, I think even even like... The men who really want to understand and fight the good fight, there's just it's a it's a big stretch empathy wise, you know, because you have to like I always made an effort for a while of my lads that I'm on a WhatsApp group with who are all comedians of anytime anything like that happened, telling them and they'll be like, what? And I'm like, yeah, they're the ones that I sort of like remember to tell you about mm. just because you it's so normalized that you would experience you have different and unpleasant experience that you're like, oh, it's boring to talk about. Like, I'd rather yeah. talk about the person in the middle who died at the gig than, yeah. you know, the oh. creepy thing that so-and-so said. Much like anything, you, you something happens to you and you're finishing a gig, you're in Manchester, you get in a car, you mm. drive 200 miles across the country, you have roadworks, you have all of that, you get home, you go to sleep, you get up, you do another job, a full-time job that you're doing, yeah. and you don't think about it again. The scenario you're describing is interesting because that's also how... The people are because they go well, how are they allowed if everyone knew and it's like well because it's like any safeguarding issue big picture you know if the if the club has an inclination but they don't tell anyone and they you know the mc that night has an inclination and they forget about it and you know the person or the person in the audience was like that was really creepy but doesn't tell anyone like there's you don't get the big picture you yeah. need all the pieces to go well no this is this isn't a one-off this is a repeated pattern of behavior that they will opportunistically do and so they can carry out whatever their sort of nefarious mm. aims are and you know the, the lack of communication which is why for, for years it was all that you know people operating on the comedy circuit had was a was a whisper network of going just so you know this guy like don't push like make sure you get the details for the hotel and um, because otherwise you'll have to stay at his house and uh he'll make you stay in the same bed you know that kind of stuff like it that was all you had and and that is actually something that get off's aims is like it's not to denigrate that but if you're not in that whisper, whisper network, you're not safe yeah. and not everything gets communicated in there. And I know in like a group I was in for a while, a WhatsApp group of female comics, someone said, oh, this person's a bad person. And someone went, no, I find that hard to believe because they're my friend. And it's like, Ugh. and and also like, why should women have that responsibility as well of like weighing up who's a good guy, who's a mm. you know bad guy? Um, I'm using guy in a gender neutral term there because I understand that all genders can be perpetrators, but you know, who it's another tax on existing in this in this world and in this industry of like weighing up who's safe to tell 
you know, who's safe to disclose to. And then, you know, if anything happens further on the line, they're like, well, did you even tell anyone at the time? But like, well, because no, because there was no one I thought would listen because that person is the person I could have told the authority figure is was the best man at his wedding. So, no, I'm not going to say that to them. Kiri, you are one of the good ones. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> the best medicine. Radio 4, 6.30 on a Tuesday, or you can listen on Catch Up on BBC Sounds. Thank you so much for your time, Kerry. Pleasure. Always a pleasure. Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by journalist and author, Caitlin Davis, PI. Caitlin, hello. (laughs) Hi, morning, Ricky. Now then, you've been on the pod a couple of times before as a journalist and author with your brilliant books, but the PI descriptor just then is a new one. Tell us when and why you became a grown-up Nancy Drew. <laughs> grown-up Nancy Drew. Yeah, I don't have the twinkly blue eyes and the sports car that Nancy Drew drives, but uh, yeah. Well, I wanted to write a history of, of female private eyes. I wanted to, you know, to try and understand what do they do and when did they start, and what cases did they solve? And then I realised that actually I, I don't even know what private investigators do. So I thought I'd better train myself, do a course, and then I'll understand what the job is about, and then hopefully I'll you know have a better way into sort of looking at the job historically. Yeah. So, I mean, I just Googled how to become a PI, and all these options, very cheap options, came up. And then I realised that, you know, it's not regulated. Anyone can become a PI. If you want to become a PI, you can open an agency tomorrow, you know, whatever your background, education, criminal record, etc. So I decided to do a course through the ABI, the Association of British Investigators, because they're the oldest professional organisation. And I did it online because this was during COVID, so you couldn't do it in person. So I went online and learned how to become a PI. In the first chapter of your wonderful book, Private Inquiries, it just like you announced that you're going to become a private investigator. And I was like, go on then. This is amazing. <laughs> was it tricky? Um, it was different from what I expected. It, there was an awful lot of uh, you know, legal documents to read. It was, the emphasis is very much on you know, being a professional, being a law-abiding PI. And from what we see, you know, in popular culture on TV and in films, PIs don't seem that bothered about invading privacy or stalking people or reaching through people's bins or intercepting their phone calls. But when you start doing the course, you, you realise, of course, that all in this is completely legal because there's no real definition of what a PI is. And it's because it's, as I said, not regulating. So there are no laws that particularly apply to PI, so you're supposed to follow the rules and regulations that apply to police officers. So it meant reading endless long, you know, legal acts about what you can and, and, and can't do. So yeah, that was a surprise. Most of the course was really how to be a professional and how to do something legally. I mean, I, I did learn things like use of GPS trackings. I didn't know about that. And, you know, realised that if you place a GPS tracker on the outside of someone's vehicle in a public place like a car park, that's okay. So it's it's working out things like that. Not not that I'm gonna go ahead and now place a GPS tracker on anybody's vehicle. But I think still that's exactly the thing that someone who was going to place a GPS tracker on someone's vehicle would say on a podcast, if I'm honest with you. <laughs> 
It's a really fine line, isn't it? This was so fascinating because you do a follow-up course that we find out about later in private inquiries and it comes with like a free lock-picking device. A lock-picking manual, yes. I decided I wanted to do something a bit more practical. So I then did a diploma through UK Ping, which is another professional organisation, an open network organisation. I wanted particularly to look at process serving serving documents on people because PIs have been doing that since well, the early, early 19th century, if, if not earlier. The both string runners used to serve documents on people. So that was quite practical. I, I did learn what the rules are and how to serve a document on somebody. Whereas again, in media, it's like you just sort of sneak up <laughs> and, and, and hand them, you know, a document and divorce petition or whatever it is, and then you just sort of run. <laughs> so this explains how exactly to do that. Well, I've got to say, I, I do look over my shoulder a lot. I mean, you know, <laughs> I also had to go at, you know, at shadowing somebody because that's the sort of classic image, isn't Ugh. it? It's uh, a bloke in a trench coat and a chalky hat lurking underneath a, a street light and following somebody down the road. So I, I want you to do that. And I thought I'd be really good at it. I thought as a, a journalist and a novelist, I'm observant and I pay attention to detail. And unfortunately, I was completely useless and, uh, lost all the people that I was following <laughs> very, very quickly. I think I just wasn't concentrating in the way that a PI needs to concentrate. I was too busy in sort of uh, spinning stories in my head about the person that I was following. Yes, it, it was much harder. All the PIs I'd interviewed had told me it was really hard. But still, for some reason, I thought I could finish it. But yeah, I wasn't. I mean, the first person I, I followed did have bright yellow hair when I was wearing a red dress and you just saw that wouldn't be too difficult but it, I think it's also about anticipating I mean the person that took me out from Taylor Investigations in, in Norwich he was still training he was extremely good at what he was doing he could anticipate where the person was going and was able to watch them without being obvious whereas I just kept ducking my head every time <laughs> I had to follow her into John Lewis I was watching her, but I didn't want her to know I was watching her. I didn't want to be watching a woman anyway, so I felt a bit uncomfortable about yeah. that. And every time she looked up, I just ducked my head, making it very, very obvious that I was watching her. So again, fail. That's really interesting you say about feeling uncomfortable watching a woman and indeed sort of creeping on anyone. The fact that I've just used the phrase creeping on anyone when I didn't mean to is interesting because what becomes quite clear in everything that you're talking about in private inquiries is you have to leave your morality at the door quite a lot if you want to be a successful private investigator. I think that's the sort of the line that a lot of PIs take. And I would say that it probably comes from men more than anybody. And I think, you know, modern PIs, particularly modern women PIs, are doing their utmost to be honest and trustworthy and following the law. I and mean, they don't just take on any case. You can't just go to a PI and go, can you follow so-and-so? They want to know why. They want to know if you've got a legitimate reason to, to doing that. And definitely PIs in the past couldn't have given up, you know, whatever about that. But these days, it's definitely changed. So some of the women in the book in the early days, and particularly the men, the crooked men that they work for, yeah, they're following anyone. They're, they're using entrapment, basically. Okay, let's go back in time. What sort of timescale does private inquiries yeah. cover? 
Well, the first documented case uh, in in the UK of a woman being sent to do undercover work is around the 1850s. So that's pretty much when I started. The problem is, of course, it's an undercover job. It's an underground job. And men, particularly men in Scotland Yard, are, are hiring women to do this, but they're not being very open about the fact that they're hiring women. So it's very difficult to find out what was the woman's name, what was her age, where did she come from, because they just hid their identities. So to begin with, it's very hard to work out, is this woman even real? So Mrs Jenkins, for example, is said to be the first female private detective in Britain. That's all we've got to go on, Mrs Jenkins. I mean, (laughs) very, very difficult. Um, And she was hired apparently by the head of the Metropolitan Police's detective department, Charles Frederick Field. Then when he retired, he was the head of the detective department, and when he retired, he did what an awful lot of men were do after him. He opened a private inquiry agency in London. And then he hired a woman called Mrs. Grocott, and she is a real woman, Sarah Grocott. You know, I found her in, in archives and in, in records. And he hired her, she was a cook, a former cook, and he hired her to move into a household in in West London and bore two holes through her mistress's bedroom door to see if her mistress was having an affair, woman that's married. What she'd seen, she reported back to Inspector, ex-Inspector Field. So that's really where I started with, with that case because it was the very high profile and scandalous case uh-huh. and the women who ex-inspector field hired were really given a rough time in in court yeah. you know their evidence and their testimony wasn't taken seriously at all they were spies they were genetic servants they were untrustworthy field meanwhile went on to you know enjoy a much longer career and also that case is interesting because it's when the sort of peeping tom image started that private eyes are, they're snooping into private affairs, they're pretending to be someone they're not, they're doing it for money, they're motivated by money. And also the idea that this is women's role in detection. This is what women were good at. You know, if you were watching a woman, hire another woman, get that woman to befriend her target and worm her way into the woman's confidence and then nail her with some evidence of uh, an affair or something else. And that's such an unfair image, and it's continually right up until today. And even at the time that this case was going on, women were doing all sorts of undercover work. So matrimonial was just one element, really. Mm. Yeah, that skews the vulgarity, but sort of snakes with tits image of women being able to worm their way into stuff and quite happy to deceive. Snakes with tits, I've never heard that. Where does that come from? I mean, I did work for a lads mag for a long time, so maybe I've like <laughs> absorbed too much misogyny. Um, I thought it was quite a popular phrase. Oh, I, I don't know it, but yeah, I mean, one of the women, one of the modern women in the book is saying that someone accused her of being, uh, oh, what was it, a sheep in tarts clothing or something like was- that. So again, it's the same sort of image, and, and it's still thrown at women today. Mm. And it's in contrast as well, or goes hand in hand, not even in contrast with 
you have this image. But then as private detective work became more popular and more understood as an industry, the women who were doing it were sort of looked at like fun novelty items, like, you know, like a squirrel on water skis, the descriptions in the press. It really wasn't seen as a job for a woman, was it? No, and I think a lot of women played on that, though. No, because even when you get to sort of the end 1900s where you've got women running, running and owning their own agencies and hiring men, you know, the agents in the field are all men. Even then, when you've got quite a few of them doing this, often operating right around the corner from each other, they still pretend that they're the only woman, private detective. So they sort of play on it a little bit, the unusual quality that, you know, there's no one else, so they're the only woman doing it. By the 1920s and early 1930s, it was seen as one of the best paid careers for women that didn't require specific qualification or education. And at that point, you've had, in London's West End alone, you had 11 women running their own private detection agencies. And yet today, in the whole of the UK, there's only perhaps 15. Wow. So you can see that's a, a massive job. Absolutely. Now, the subtitle of Private Inquiries is The Secret History of Female Sleuths. And it's really not kidding because female private detectives were really hard to pin down and categorise. And you touched on it earlier, like women just disappeared. were very hard to find when you're looking through ancestry or through official documents because names would change or they'd get married or they'd just disappear. And people played a sort of fast and loose with facts about themselves, where they were born, who they were born to, their age, all of that. So I wondered... How often did it feel like you were on a wild goose chase? And how did you get over that with the sleuthing that you were using to investigate these women from the past? Uh, yeah, all the time I was, I was, I had my head in my hands, really, <laughs> because I'd be like, you know, well, who is this woman? What's she lied about then? I mean, women used private dissection as a place to totally reinvent themselves and they weren't questioned at all. The press absolutely latched it out you know, printed their biographies and printed their case stories. And you read them and you just think that anybody has believed this. So there were several several women that I focus on. One of the earliest, Antonia Moser, she became a private detective in 1888. That was the year of the so-called Jack the Looper murders, when the idea of detectives uh, not doing their job and maybe we should bring women in and then we do it better. That was very much, you know, under public discussion. So perhaps that was something that sort of pushed her into becoming a private detective. But, you know, her name wasn't Antonia Moser. Where did she get Moser from? And how did she manage to hang on to the name Moser, even though she wasn't married to Mr. Moser, who was in fact the person who owned the detective agency that gave her the job? She spun quite a lot. You know, I discovered quite a few things about her in archives that she would, well, basically lied about. And then there's another woman who is incredibly difficult, Annette Kerner. Blimey, she is a riddle wrapped in a mystery in a bag of lies. Completely, yeah. And she called herself Mrs. Sherlock Holmes. And she did run a detective agency on Baker Street, just a few doors down from Sherlock's fictional home. So she does exist. I've seen the letterhead and, you know, business cards. I've seen her being interviewed on Platinum News. We know she's real. But my goodness, she certainly <laughs> managed. She, she had a, you know, a cupboard full of skeletons. And trying to find out the truth about her 
because she had three different surnames as well. She lied about where she was born. She lied about her age. She lied about her name. She lied about her marital status. She had two children, a son and a daughter. And I had a breakthrough at one point when I found the son using a surname that his mother's first husband had changed his name to. And that was the point we were like, whoa, <laughs> you know, okay, I, f- I, f- I found him. But then trying to contact, you know, modern day people and find out, look, did you know that Annette was a private detective? That I went through probate records. Having found her son, I then found her nephews and then I found the wills that belonged to her nephews. And then I found everybody named in those wills. And I just started contacting them one by one. And then there's two women in the book whose identity I still don't know. I mean, I I still don't know for certain. One was a woman called May Story, who was from Tyne, near Newcastle upon Tyne. I believe that her father was a coal miner in Yorkshire. I think I found her, but that wasn't her real name. But I was still not, you know, I'm really hoping that once the book is out, someone will get in touch and uh, and put me right. And then there's another woman from the 1960s, Anne Summer, who was very, uh, very much a 1960s image of a female private eye. She carried a, a tape recorder in her bra, and uh, she did a lot of snooping and boring holes in walls, and uh, you know, very much like we did in Victorian times. I don't know who on earth she is. And I had three private investigations and two genealogists help me, and we couldn't establish who she is. She was on TV. She was on the Eamon Ranchman's show. Uh, her photograph is in the Daily Mail. So presumably she was a real person. But, yeah, I'm not quite sure who she was. I think it's really interesting, and you get this across so brilliantly in private inquiries, you go to visit Sherlock Holmes Museum, the Sherlock Holmes Museum, and, and you talk about how some people act like he's an actual, genuine historical figure rather than a fictional figure. And with Maud West, Annette Kerner, and Summer across this period of history, people want to believe what they're being sold when it comes to this industry. Yeah, it's true. You know, Sherlock's the most famous private detective who never existed. And when you go to the museum, the whole sort of spiel guess is this is Sherlock's bedroom, this is his bay, this is his study, this is his chemistry cage. You know, it's okay. like um it's like, well, well wait a minute, he, he didn't exist. And then you look in the visitors book and you look at letters that are written to Sherlock and he's endured for for so long. Um and I thought he was first Sherlock Holmes, I think, first appeared in 1887 in studying Scarlet. So women were already operating on their own a good 10, 15, even 20 years before Sherlock insisted. Things continued and um, they were wiped out. And as you say, with people like Maud West, who was a hugely famous detective in, again, the 1920s and 30s, I mean, the stories that she spun and the way that the press would just... Uh, just print them, really. Just, yeah. you know, just encourage these women. Antonia Moser, I talked about before. I mean, here she is in the late 19th century talking about how she tracked uh, a bigamist across Europe and then followed him to the States and then followed him 
for three days on the back of a pony uh, to <laughs> Chicago, I think it was. And you're just thinking, what? What are you talking about? And it's, it's like, I don't think so. I don't think that happened. Amazing. <laughs> but they're great stories and we love a great story. We love a narrative. I wondered, out of all of the women that you have discovered, their, their lies and their truths, which female detective from history would you have hired and why? I can say that immediately. Zena Scott Archer. That's who I've got. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Zena in some... Oh, she's brilliant. So she ran an agency in Liverpool, Scott's Detective Bureau, which her father, an ex-flying um, squad officer, had set up in the late 1940s. And after his death, she took it over and she ran it until into the 1980s. So that, that's a long, that's a good 30-year-plus uh, mm-hmm. career. And Zena really, she was a professional. She saw herself as a businesswoman. She didn't lie about the cases that she wanted to touch. She didn't break the law. I would hire Zena on a flash. You know, she had a very varied workload. And the press repeatedly tried to push her in that that mould, you know, of uh, if you're a woman and you're either a honey trapper or you're, you know, you're spying on uh, matrimonial cases. And Zena resisted that. For 13 years, she, she resisted that image. I mean, she was a very glamorous woman and she was very good at self-publicity and PR. So she didn't show me price, but she was careful not to spin bullshit stories, basically. And three main model women that I interview in the book. So we've got Jen Jarvie, who's the death of Buster Gainshaw, looking at cold case murders. And we've got Sam Kimper, who runs rogue datings that looks into people being scammed by, you know, online dating sites. And Charlotte Notley or uh, Norwich. I would go to any of those without hesitation. And I think by the end of the book, Going to a private detective felt like a possible thing to do. I wouldn't have thought of that before. I wouldn't have thought, I don't know, I've, I've got a problem on this issue or I think a crime's been committed. I'm, I'm going to go hire a client. Now I think I would. And I think these days when trust in the mechanics for particularly men, particular, yeah. um, especially if you're a woman, when, you know, there is so little trust. I mean, who would you go to? Would you would you go to a police officer or would you go to a woman PMI? If I trusted a woman and I knew she was in a jit, I would go to her. And are people going to be able to go to Caitlin Davis PI? No, but I have been offered work. Amazing. <laughs> Which is worrying, really, when you think that all I've done is a couple of online courses. No, I don't, I don't think I could do it. If somebody asked me to help them out, I could do it. But which cases would you take on? Could you pick and choose? And, and how do you work out whether someone does have a legitimate living thing or not? And writing books, I get enough harassment and threats as it is. So I don't think I could necessarily take on a job like that. I mean, we do need to be tough. But having said that, women love the job. I mean, they really, really find it satisfying. The satisfaction they get from solving the case seeing that they all describe it as an incredible buzz um so they're, they're very dedicated to their clients they're very they're very hard working private inquiries the secret history of female sleuths is published by the history press and out tomorrow caitlin i'm, I'm a tiny bit disappointed that i can't come to you for pi services at any point in the so future 
But it has been absolutely fascinating learning about these women and learning about the industry. So thank you so much for chatting with me. Thank you for having me on. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we twirl our ribbons in triumph as we discuss all things women's sport. So first up, let's talk about last week's World Gymnastics Championships and more specifically, Simone Biles. You might remember Biles took a bit of time off to look after her mental health a couple of years ago following a pretty disastrous Olympics in Tokyo where she was forced to retire from events after experiencing the twisties. That's kind of like the yips if you're into cricket. Anyway, she announced in June this year she'd be returning to competition and she really has made quite the return. After helping the USA to a record seventh consecutive team gold last week, she went on to win the all-round gold on Friday, which sealed her place in history as the most decorated gymnast of all time. She went on to win another two golds on Sunday in the beam and floor event, bringing her total world championship titles to a staggering 23. Now, they do start competition early in gymnastics, but lads, she is still only 26 years old. Things were also exciting for Team GB, but not in such a good way as the 2022 world floor champion Jessica Gadarova was forced to drop out. Taking her place, Alice Kinsella finished seventh, having been called up at very short notice. While we're on the subject of elite performances, the Sunday Times Sportswoman of the Year Awards shortlist was published last week and I was chuffed to see Phoebe Schechter, Britain's first female American football coach in the NFL, make the shortlist for Changemaker Award. Congratulations to her. In Team of the Year, perhaps unsurprising to see the Lionesses get a nod, but they're up against England Rugby, England Netball, England Cricket and the Team GB Team Pursuit team who took gold at the World Championships this year. I'd have thought the Lionesses would be a shoo-in for that, but they did win last year, so who knows, maybe they'll mix it up a bit. In the main event, absolutely delighted to see Mary Earps nominated. Obviously, I want her to win, but she is up against Katerina Johnson-Thompson, a very deserving candidate who won her second heptathlon world championship title this year, as well as Tammy Beaumont, who became the first woman to hit a century in the 100, as well as Hannah Cockcroft, who is up for both Disability Sportswoman of the Year and Sportswoman of the Year, having won her 14th world title at the Para-Athletics World Champs this year and has set the record in five different events. Also nominated are aptly named horsewoman Rosalind Cantor, boxer Chantelle Cameron and netballer Helen Housby. We look forward to the winners being unveiled later in the year, but of course, they're all already winners. Finally, as if you've not had enough good news already, last week it was announced that Italian sticker company Panini, you remember them, will launch its first ever Women's Super League sticker collection in December this year. You do remember those sticker albums. They had them for everything. Everything. I think even Neighbours, although possibly they were actually little cards and I think they had pink bubblegum sticks in them, which wouldn't pass muster in this day and age, I'm sure. But I remember... The absolute glee of my then boyfriend back in 2006 when I bought him a World Cup sticker album and listener, he was 26 years old. So I am beyond excited about the absolute glee of my daughter and thousands more like her when I present her with one of these sticker albums later on in the year because she doesn't care very much about gender politics yet, but she does love a sticker. Swapsies, anyone? That is all from me this week and I'll be back next time with more women's sport.
Welcome to Rated or Dated. Now, at the end of last week's podcast, when Hannah announced what we were going to be watching this week, I was actually quite unprofessional in my reaction. So, Hannah, sorry. What film this week quite rightly made me say, Jesus Christ! (laughs) (laughs) This week, we watched Watership Down, which premiered this month in 1978. Oh, yes. Welcome to the 1970s, when the ways of entertaining your kids included leaving them in a hot car in a pub car park, (laughs) opening the front door and telling them what time to be home, or, if it was raining, plonking them in front of a film in which cartoon rabbits tear chunks out of each other. Mm. Happy days. Happy days. It's based on the 1972 novel by Richard Adams, which was itself based on stories the author told his daughter on long car journeys. He really didn't want to be a dad then. (laughs) Fucking hell. Yeah. And he bolstered that with his experiences during Operation Market Garden. Jesus. What? Do you know what? Operation Market Garden, or for anyone who doesn't, after D-Day, the uh, Allies decided they were going to invade the Netherlands and get to Germany through the Netherlands. And uh, it went quite badly. Perfect fodder for children's entertainment. Watership Down is a real place in Hampshire, in the South Downs, by the way. I mean, I'm sure our people living in Hampshire already know that. Its cast is pretty starry and includes mm. Richard Bryars, John Hurt, Zero Mostel, shouty as ever, <laughs> Joss Ackland, Nigel Hawthorne, Dan Amelia, and brace yourself, Jen, Heidi Heyes, Simon Cadell. I noticed that, but also I'd like to add to it when I was going through the uh, the cast yesterday. Also, Derek Griffiths, yeah, who I love. If you remember him from children's TV in the nineteen eighties, couldn't be more seventies if it tried. Really, this film <laughs> could it? The film was an instant success and made a huge return for its investors, up to five thousand percent, apparently. It also hung around in cinemas, meaning that it was ranked number 17 of the top earners at the UK box office in 1978, but also number six in 1979. Six months after its release, Bright Eyes, sung by Art Garfunkel and written by Mike Batt of Remember You're a Womble fame, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. entered the charts. It immediately went to number one, where it stayed for six weeks, making it the best-selling single of 1979 in the UK. Yeah, and the reason, according to my dad... Paul Simon was the talent. <laughs> Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> Has that been disputed? I'm not sure that's ever been disputed. I'm sure there were some people somewhere on the internet discussing this at length. If I may just interject quickly, it really does speak to the horror of that song that it was one of the least welcome aspects of this film. <laughs> <laughs> While many cinemas had late night screenings to cater to an interested adult audience, Not all adults were impressed, especially at the rating of U, Universal, given by the British Board of Film Film Classification. I nearly said flagellation there and it would have been fitting. (laughs) Concerns centred on gore, violence and the fact that a seagull tells some rabbits to piss off, which I actually do believe would happen in real life. That's what seagulls sound like they're shouting all of the time. Exactly. In fact, as recently as 2017, Watership Down was continuing to give people the vapours with the Daily Record reporting, quote, Bunny bloodbath on Easter Sunday sparks outrage as parents slam sick Channel 5 for airing Watership Down. On Easter Sunday? 
That's audacious. Mums and dads complain that the sight of the cute cartoon characters being slaughtered put their kids off their Easter eggs. Who am I to doubt, people? But in my experience, nothing, nothing puts children off Easter eggs. (laughs) However, in 2022, the BBFC, rightly or wrongly, relented its website stating, quote, All our classification decisions are shaped by people's opinions and are regularly updated in order to reflect how things may have changed over time. The most recent submission of Watership Down in 2022 saw the animated adventure passed at PG for the first time in the film's history over 44 years after its first release on film. This change in classification from a U to PG is in line with our guidelines and is accompanied by the content advice of, quote, mild violence, threat, brief bloody images and language. So let's tuck into the plot of the Texas Chainsaw Rabbit. (laughs) After a bit of backstory about Rabbit Jesus, the main action begins (laughs) as Fiverr, a rabbit, has a vision of destruction of the community that he lives in. After failing to persuade the Warrens' leader that all the rabbits need to evacuate, a small group, led by Fiverr's brother Hazel, heads off to find a new home. Biblical epic much? We'll talk about that later. (laughs) The group encounters lots of dangers and a hawk takes their only doe. Oh! (laughs) They meet a rabbit called Cowslip, but work out that life is only good in this Warren because a farmer is feeding these rabbits so he can later snare them and have them for his tea. Eventually, they reach Watership Down, but the trouble doesn't stop there. It seems that the bulldozers did come and destroy their old home, according to one rabbit that managed to escape. And they were then attacked by some bad bastards, rabbits called the Ephaphrons. I don't know why everything in this is so difficult to pronounce, given it's for children, but maybe yeah, we'll why get to that later. Why are foxes called Roombas? They're, they're little mechanical hoovers. Anyway, I'm sure we'll come to that. Mm. And this all culminates in a great escape type thing followed by a big fucking fight and then victory for the good guys slash rabbits. And Hazel then dies an old man slash rabbit. (laughs) The end. (laughs) So, had you seen this before, Mickey? I know you hadn't, Jen. Had you seen it before? Yes! Yeah, because I am a child of the 70s slash 80s and apparently it's what we were supposed to watch. I think I've seen it more than once as well. What I will say, Hannah, is I have never chosen to watch it. <laughs> so I've never watched it apart from one section of it, which is where the seagull says piss off. It was, so I remember going to a party. My parents' friends had a party. I think I was about eight years old and Watership Down was the film they'd selected to play for the kids in the back room. Keep the I was kids probably, quiet slash traumatised yep. for life. I was probably the youngest one there. I reckon most of them were probably about 12, 13. But... Interestingly enough, skip forward a few years to when I'm about 13 and the big kids are like 16, 17 and at the very same house upstairs in the teenage son's bedroom they are watching It which I (laughs) did go and sit and watch with them. Yeah, thanks very much the Hamers. You've scarred a lot of children. The Hamer House of Horror. Thanks very much. Thanks very much guys. I may surprise you to learn that I actually wasn't that traumatised by this when, or maybe it doesn't surprise you when I watched it. You were scared of the Castrol GTX advert. I am surprised this didn't traumatise you, Hannah. How old were you when you saw it, Hannah? 42. I think I saw it. I think I saw it on 
the telly or on video, I'm going to say probably six, seven, eight, something like that. I don't know. I'm sure there's got to be some separation between kids who grew up in rural places and kids that grew up in urban places, how they would react to this. I don't know. I grew up in a pretty rural place. Same. I remember watching this and thinking people are horrible. That was the takeaway message of this for me. You know the question of you know when people say, "Oh, I'm killing my own food. I'm raising and killing mm. my own food, and my kids are involved in it." You know, kids are hardier than perhaps we think they are. I, I, I certainly don't remember being traumatized by this film by any stretch of the imagination. I would have been traumatized by this if I'd. The general it. used yeah. to scare me. Yeah, um, there's yeah, all I mean, the slaver and disgusting. Blood. It's the, yeah, it's, yeah. He was disgusting, and his weird he, eyes. I, suppose, I don't know. Yeah, eyes, guys. The face eggs of the rabbit. Ugh. The groin of the, the groin face. of the face. <laughs> <laughs> what do I call it in the American office? The eyes of the groin of the face. <laughs> I found watching it this time, I just was more annoyed by the religious undertones rabbit of it Jesus. than I was by the violence of it. To be honest, that actually concerned me more. I don't know. I was too depressed to pick up on anything. Yeah, it's yeah, so depressing. Yeah, immediately depressing. It doesn't even like sneak you in with a little bit of joy and some rabbits hopping around having a lovely time. It's immediately the most depressing thing to watch. <laughs> but it's an environmental statement in many ways, isn't it? And maybe that's a lesson children should be learning young. I don't I know. I think there are better ways to teach them, Hannah. Do there need to be rabbits with like? wires around their neck going <laughs> with flies buzzing it's, around it them like and it's depressing yeah, yeah. It's, it's, i find yeah. the animation style even that is depressing miserable yeah. <laughs> just just, just miserable. misery like we've not bothered to outline some of these rabbits what's the fucking point <laughs> okay <laughs> they're all gonna die who cares Do you yeah. know my mum actually refused to watch this with me <laughs> she said i can't do it i'm sorry no and I was like, Mum, I don't blame you. Don't worry about it. To be clear, I'm not saying it wouldn't traumatise some kids because I'm sure it would traumatise a lot of oh. kids. But watching it again as an adult, it triggered nothing. It reminded... Because I haven't watched this for probably 40 years. And it didn't remind me of being... What fundamentally reminded me of is that Charlotte quite liked Bright Eyes and that was quite good. Yeah, fair. Absolutely fair. <laughs> to have to listen to that again and again. <laughs> but in itself... I don't recall being traumatised. Depressing might be a close-up. Probably was a bit fed up. But like I say, the message in it... Well, I don't know. What do you think the message is? Anyone? I mean, there might be an environmental message in it, I guess. Like, there was a bit... I don't even remember what it was, but there was a bit where I was a bit like, oh, right, okay, that's kind of relevant now. Yeah. And then I went back to being miserable. So maybe that's the message. I don't know. It's the message... Remember to take some women if you want to start. Well, yeah, there is that. We'll get, maybe we'll get on to gender in a bit. But it's also got some, you know, some comments to say about a police state and, you know, how communities yeah, are run and all of that. Of well he said us, there's yeah. no... Everyone was like, oh, it's it's an allegory for... And he was like, no, it isn't. It's just... It's not, it's not about anything. About it's just an adventure story. That's it. Don't mean anything. This is free on YouTube. We watched it on YouTube for free. If you're listening to this and thinking, I need me some Watership Down in my life. I mean, one, what's wrong with you? But two, go ahead, free on YouTube, which then recommended to me that I might want to watch The Animals of Farthing Wood. No, thank you. Or two, The Plague Dogs. I was, I was like, going to no. say, I think I'm out, this folks. reminded me a lot of The Animals of Farthing Wood, which was a yeah. children's cartoon that I used to watch as a child. And I fucking hated that as well because it was so 
depressing and rabbits always died in it. I loved that book. I loved the Animals of Fatherhood book, but I felt like the hedgehogs got the very hedgehogs and the deal, rabbits. You know, they're they always dying in it, and you're just like, man, this is bleak. I'm I'm eight. I don't want this for myself. <laughs> I like the heron whose wing whistles the tune to the Animals of Fatherhood Wood when he flaps around, but like the rest of it can fuck off. If you're wondering what sort of person does really love Watership Down, here's a fun fact: there was a British crust punk band formed in Brighton in 2005. Of course. That that was called The Fall of Ephrafra. Anyway, they disbanded in 2009 after completing a trilogy of concept albums. Who doesn't love a concept (laughs) album? One was called Ausla, one was called Eli, and one was called Illale. They were all inspired by the mythology of the 1972 novel. Mickey, you're right, the women. Mm. I was like, come on, you've not thought this through. It's oh, it's it's very wang heavy, isn't it? Very book heavy. All our sex is to them is reproduction. Yeah, apparently they put fucking in their diary for like February or <laughs> they something. Have, yeah, they really Which have. fortunately is pointed out to them by a racist seagull. So, <laughs> so good news there. How are you going to, what is that accent? How are you going to have the kids? I don't know. If you I don't have, have no have idea. The I'm from the big water. No idea. The big water. But the minute he turned up, I was like, why is this guy always shouting? Oh, it's because he's played by Zero Mostel. There we go. There we go. Is that not supposed to be the comic relief, right? Because they must have gone, this is so depressing. (laughs) We need to chuck in a little bit of comedy here. What about a a really aggressive racist seagull? (laughs) Let's bring him into them. I feel like we've come to an end and we haven't even been recording very long. Does anybody have anything that they want to add? Please never make me watch this ever again. (laughs) Oh, it was awful. Like... It's an hour and a half of absolute misery. depression. Just misery. Mm. It's miserable. And like I say, the animation's not even that no, great. It's, it's oh, definitely like, not. Fiverr looks like sometimes looks like a young rabbit and sometimes looks 107. Why do you think that everyone did rush to say it? Because it was undoubtedly incredibly popular. And I know we look back on those days like, well, you know, there wasn't the internet, but there were other things to do. Like gouging your own eyeballs out, for example. Or, you know, taking your (laughs) fingernails off. Like, yeah, sorry, Hannah. (laughs) They were drawn in by that banging theme tune, Hannah. (laughs) Maybe it was that. No, seriously. I, I, I can't answer I can't answer you. I do not know what the appeal might have been. Did they know it was gonna be that miserable? It's just like oh it's a cartoon. Because about... like, they were just like, Oh, I like rabbits. Was it like when Vera's mum took us to see the bear at the Electric Palace for her eighteenth not the uh the thing that's on Disney Plus. It's just a film that was on or indeed when Nicola took me to see Wiener Dog on my birthday and you were like because she was just like, It's got sausage dogs in it, you'll love that. It's got Jackson's um, in it, yeah. But it's, it's you're like, oh, do you know much about it? Uh, when, when I told you I was going to see it on my birthday. Um, or, yeah, the bear, anyway, where Vera's mum was like, this is a film about a bear. Kids like bears, don't they? And within about four seconds, she's like, that antelope is having a terrible time. We're, we're leaving. <laughs> like, we're done. <laughs> was it cocaine bear? Amazing. I think it's that thing of, you covered this at the top so beautifully, Hannah, so uh, forgive me for paraphrasing and probably not being as eloquent, but the 70s and 80s were pretty brutal. The stuff that kids were allowed to watch then wouldn't be what we would put them in front of now, and that is absolutely signified by the change in Mm -hmm. rating. But interestingly, it's worth saying that a call for a change in rating started immediately that it came out. So this was obviously a divisive film. Lots of people loved it. Lots of people were like, no, 
Thank Who you. Who are those people, Hannah? Well, Where are some they? of them are, are in a, a British crust punk band <laughs> in Brighton, but yeah. There must have been more people. Yeah. Apparently. Yeah. If you're a massive fan of Watership Down, please at us with some sort of explanation because there are three very baffled women. Here. They've also remade it. It was yeah. uh, a, a yeah. series on Netflix. Yeah. But wasn't it? Was it James McAvoy? I don't know. I don't know. I think James McAvoy. Wasn't it banned in quite a lot of places in America? I would have thought Americans would have liked it because it has this sort of, I would say, biblical epic feel to it. It's about. A man taking his people to the promised land. Banned in my yeah. house, I'll tell you that much. Yeah. For real. Okay. Watership down. Rated or dated? So sad. <laughs> rated. No. Dated. Huh. Yes. It was never rated. I don't understand the question. I'm too traumatised. It's, it's, it's dated. Uh, and also, no. <laughs> <laughs> the, the answer to that question, rated or dated, is no. <laughs> I'm going to say, I, and no offence to you two, but I think the reputation of it is perhaps slightly harsher than it deserves because I don't think it's as gory and violent as everyone but says, but miserable. I do agree that it is in parts like just actually just quite boring. So yeah. we shouldn't be sticking our kids in front of things that are quite boring. I think some of its messages stand up still, yeah. but the animation does not. All things considered, dated. It was very nuanced, mm. Hannah, as opposed to Jen and I just crying and shouting no. Well, guys, fortunately, and thank you very much to Mickey Noonan for the suggestion this morning. Next week, I'm bringing some light into your lives, possibly with a bit of racism, but we'll, we'll see. It's a while since I've seen it. Uh, <laughs> next week, we're going to watch 1993's Cool Runnings. Lovely yeah. stuff, potentially. <laughs> <laughs> Standard issue for all women.